Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. My name is Suzanne Spradley, and I'm here with my colleague, Chase Cannon. We are with NFP and the Benefits Compliance Department. And today we're going to discuss an issue that's not necessarily pressing, but it's something that we hear about over and over again from the employers um, and their involvement with group health plans. So specifically, we're going to address employer contribution strategies. So Chase, give us an introduction to this. What is it going to, what's involved from a regulatory or a statutory perspective when we are designing a contribution plan? Right. So we just continue to get questions, like you said, over and over and in lots of different ways. So we thought this would be a great topic, but we're talking about a few things. First, we're going to talk about the employer's contribution towards premiums, uh, primarily the medical plan, but also other coverage, including dental and vision. Um, There are a few other considerations and restrictions there, particularly for larger employers that are subject to the ACA's employer mandate. So we'll get into some of those Uh, Second, though, we're talking about the employer's subsidy, if any, of the employee's out-of-pocket expenses once they're enrolled in the medical plan. So, for example, employer reimbursement of deductibles or cost-sharing through an HRA, the availability of an FSA or contributions to an HSA. But sort of once they're in the plan, now how do we help them pay for their out-of-pocket expenses? And then lastly, just the idea of contributing generally to other initiatives or benefits that assist in educating or helping employees better understand their health plan offering. Okay, so that sounds like a lot to unpack. Let's start with just employer contributions towards premiums. What are some things that the employer should be thinking about? Yeah, a great place to start. Ultimately, all of this is up to the employer, right? There's no federal law that says an employer even has to offer a group health plan. Um, so there's also not a law that says they have to contribute towards that group health plan if they don't want to. Now, I just said that if they're a larger employer, uh, one with 50 or more employees, then they do have to consider the ACA's employer mandate, which does say they have to offer coverage to all full-time employees. And talking about employer contributions, they have to ensure that it's affordable I think most employers uh, that are subject to that ACA employer mandate, they're aware of it and uh, they understand that there's potential penalties that apply for failure failure to offer the coverage and and, and contribute towards the coverage. So if you're talking about employer contributions towards premiums for full-time employees, then the cost of single-only coverage must meet one of these affordability safe harbors. Most employers, again, are aware of this and doing this, but those safe harbors are based on W-2 wages, rate of pay, or the federal poverty level. But all three get back to the general idea of the employer contributing towards premiums. They have to contribute a certain amount, amount to make it affordable for the employee under one of those safe harbors. We don't have to go into the details um, on those safe harbors, But the baseline for 2018 is that the cost of single-only coverage can't exceed 9.56% of the employee's W-2 wages or their rate of pay. And then the other one is the federal poverty line safe harbor. If the monthly employee contribution for coverage for an employee is less than $96.71, I know we like to get exact, then that meets the federal poverty safe line harbor. So for many employers, though, that means a significant contribution towards premiums, and uh, those are out there as a measurement stick for affordability. 
But again, that applies only to full-time employees and only to the cost of single-only coverage. So when we're talking about flexibility um, with regard to single plus one coverage, plus two, or family coverage, uh, the employer can really come up with their own design, and that's where they have to sort of decide, do they want to encourage family coverage? Do they want to supplement the premiums more for families or those with more than uh, one or less? And all, all that plays back into the employer's strategy. What do they want? Is that, is that important for them for their overall compensation strategy? Is it something that they can afford as an employer to contribute more? So, and, and when you're talking about the single-only coverage, they are making that calculation regardless of what coverage the employee enrolls in. That's it's right. Just, that's just their affordability baseline, I guess you could speak. That's exactly right. So if they have to, they have to consider affordability, um, what other kind of things do they have to think about? Right. So the next question we get a lot on is, okay, we've sort of considered this affordability, but we have groups of employees that we want to contribute different amounts towards their coverage. We want to vary our employer contributions based on geographic location or within the, uh, within the uh, same company, but maybe different business lines. All of that is allowed as long as you meet these non-discrimination rules. And when we're talking non-discrimination in this regard, we're talking about not favoring your more highly compensated employees. Um, this matters based on self versus fully insured, but basically there's two sets of rules out there, and you may hear these referred to as sections 105 and 125 non-discrimination. Um, the basic idea under both of those is you can't have a contribution structure that somehow favors your uh, more highly compensated employees. Um, so. Employers run afoul of this if they get into situations where they're trying to favor a management group or an executive group, and it's natural for employers to want to do that, um, but that's where they run into problems. Now, 105 non-discrimination applies only to self-insured plans now. Um, 125 would come into play if an employer allows premiums to be paid pre-tax. So not all of these rules are going to apply all the time. Uh, but it's definitely something to consider anytime you're varying your employer contribution levels. Yeah, as you said, it's natural for employers to want to try to favor those highly compensated employees so that they'll stick around. And um, but it's something we see all the time, and something that employers need to be aware of. So if a employer is uh, does violate one of these rules, what has enforcement been like in the past? Yeah, so it's important to remember if there's a violation, generally the consequence is that the highly compensated employees um, are taxed on a portion of that contribution. Um, they lose some of the tax benefits associated with it. So as of now, it's not a monetary penalty paid by the employer, but it's still a difficult conversation to have with the highly compensated. Um, but we can see how this is tempting for employers and if we're being honest, it's true that there hasn't exactly been a high level of enforcement from the IRS on these rules. It is the IRS that would enforce these generally because those sections I just mentioned are sections of the Internal Revenue Code. IRS has purview over enforcement on those. Um, many thought that we'd see an increased level of enforcement on the non-discrimination rules due to the ACA, which makes 105 applicable to fully insured plans. Um, but that provision of the ACA has never taken effect. It's been punted down the road by the IRS. So it remains to be seen whether enforcement will go up. Um, but it's an issue that's out there. We talk about it just in case. The IRS can always step in 
for that or other reasons and have a look at this, uh, the group health plan itself and the employer contribution structure. Well, and I certainly wouldn't rely on the lack of enforcement in the, fa in the past when designing my contribution strategy. I would still comply with the non-discrimination rules. You right. never know when you're going to get somebody in a position at the IRS who decides to take issue with a particular provision and, in, and make an example of a company. That's right. So, um, so now we've talked about non-discrimination. We've talked about affordability. What other issues do you consider when it comes to contributing towards premiums? Yeah, so there's a few other things to consider. Um, first, some employers like to age band their contributions. Uh, depending on how it's structured, that could raise ADEA issues. What does ADEA stand for? That's the Age uh, Discrimination and Employment Act that says that employers can't treat older folks in the company any differently than younger folks. And when the ADEA says older, they're talking about those age 40 and above. So I won't ask you to disclose your age on this podcast, Suzanne, <laughs> but I'm right around the big four and I don't feel very old. Right. <laughs> so the ADEA is quite generous. Glad to know that we're protected, though. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so basically, the, the ADEA says those over 40 cannot pay a higher dollar amount than uh, those under 40. Uh, now, that sounds pretty restrictive, and I'm guessing there's some listeners thinking, wow, we do that. Um, so to help with at least some flexibility there, the ADEA allows arrangements where older and younger employees pay the same percentage of the cost, even if that results in the older employees actually paying more money. So you really want to focus in on the percentage there. Um, generally, if employees, if employers are receiving composite rates from a carrier and the older and younger folks are contributing the same dollar amount or the same percentage, there won't be any ADEA issues. Where employers can get into trouble is if the carrier is issuing, is, uh, using age-banded rates and then the employer is contributing a flat dollar amount so that the employees are picking up the rest. In that case, it's possible that older employees would be contributing more since they'd be picking up the additional cost associated with the higher age bands. So the way around that is to either request composite rates from the carrier or have the employee contribute a flat dollar amount with the employer picking up the additional costs. So we don't see that too often, but something to look at if you're receiving age-banded rates from carriers. Um, and then the last two issues to consider on employer premium contributions probably go without saying, but we're going to say them anyway. Employers should not contribute less or offer some type of incentive or cash out for employees who are Medicare age or enrolled in Medicare. Um, this is also tempting for employers, but the Medicare secondary payer MSP rules generally prohibit that. So some, I was going to say, and you, and you can understand why. What they're trying to do is make sure employers who have active employees are not pushing those employees off into the Medicare system. That's exactly right. Um, so that's something to watch out for. Employers get tempted by this. We hear about this continuously. Um, so uh, something to consider. The other thing is uh, HIPAA, which prohibits treating anyone differently based on a health status, an illness, claims history, anything like that. Uh, but employers get tempted by this one because they see they have one or two employees who are driving claims and therefore costs, and they think, if I could just get them off the plan. Um, but don't be tempted by that. It's prohibited and comes with some, both of those come with significant penalties. They do allow, HIPAA does allow reverse discrimination. So if for some reason you have an individual who's dealing with a lot of high costs, so he has co-pays and maybe his co-pays are driving up because he's got a lot of cost due to some chronic condition, 
you can benefit those with a health status in that manner. So you can right. pay, um, contribute more towards someone with a bad health status than someone with a good health status. Right. But you can't uh, provide incentives, for example, for them to go into the individual market. That's right. So that would be taking health status into account. So uh, last question, I think, on uh, contributions toward premiums. May an employer reimburse an employee for non-group plan premiums? So say you've got an employee who wants to opt out of the group coverage and wants to go into the individual exchange um, and and have the employer contribute toward that individual coverage. Is that acceptable or is it not? Uh, definitely not. This practice, as most know by now, is prohibited under the ACA. Uh, the problem is that, that arrangement is considered a health reimbursement arrangement or a premium reimbursement arrangement, as the guidance says, and it that violate therefore becomes a group health plan, and then it violates by its structure um, and by its nature two of the ACA's rules: annual limits and preventive services. And so um, there's an exception for smaller employers called the QSERA, uh, but that applies only if the employer isn't offering a group health plan at all, and then they have to meet several other requirements. So it's pretty hard to even meet that exception, uh, but we just say the general answer is no, and um, that's not something employers should generally consider as this reimbursement of individual plans. It is something we'll be watching because there, there, there is some interest in, uh, in Washington to broaden that QSERA to lar larger plans and so possibly allow some flexibility. But right now, as Chase said, there is no flexibility with that. We'll just watch and, and certainly update you if anything changes in that regard. So we, we're done with contributions towards premiums. What about supplementing an employee's out-of-pocket cost? Yeah, so let's move on to that. Um, on, on that, employers have a lot of options just depending on how generous they want to be and what administrative and compliance burdens they want to take on. Uh, the first option, these are generally referred to as the uh, reimbursement arrangements that an employer can have. And the first one is uh, an HRA, a health reimbursement arrangement. And that is just a 100% employer-funded account that reimburses employees for medical expenses they've incurred that aren't covered uh, by the plan. So essentially you have maybe a deductible of however much you could set up an HRA that uh, reimburses employees for those amounts out of pocket. Now that impacts HSA eligibility. If you are, have this HRA coverage, you can't also have an HSA. Um, it also invites some compliance burdens in that an HRA is generally considered a group health plan, as we just said. Um, usually it's integrated with the medical plan, and so the medical plan's compliance uh, counts for the HRA, but it's definitely something to consider those additional compliance obligations. If they don't want to fund an HRA uh, as an employer, there's two other options. The first is a general purpose FSA or even a limited purpose FSA, uh, but that's basically uh, an FSA is a flexible, flexible spending arrangement. And the employer can just let employees make pre-tax contributions up to the limit uh, for 2018, that's $2,650. And then employees have access to that amount that they can tap into to cover their out-of-pocket expenses. An FSA is considered a group health plan, so you'd have some of the same compliance issues. It's also funded through a Section 125 plan. That's how you get the pre-tax employee contributions made. So there's some considerations there, including the irrevocable election rule, meaning employees can't just go and change elections uh, during the year unless they have a qualifying event. And uh, the employer has to make the FSA election amount available on day one of the planned year. So you always have this risk as an employer 
that the employee elects, let's say $2,000, uses it all on day one or two of the plan year, and then terminates from employment, and the employer's sort of left holding the bag. So there are some risks there. Um, also, FSAs are considered self-insured plans, and they're offered through a Section 125 plan. That means they have both 105 and 125 non-discrimination to consider, so no ability to sort of favor your highly compensated through an FSA. The last option is to contribute to an HSA. That's a health savings account. An HSA is an individually owned account by the employee, um, but this would be an option primarily where the employer is offering a qualifying high deductible health plan. Um, but if that's the case, they can allow employees to contribute to their HSAs pre-tax through the cafeteria plan, and then the employer could either match those contributions um, or provide seed dollars, just provide a certain amount uh, per month or per year for employees that elect the high deductible plan. HSAs through a cafeteria plan are not subject to these same Section 125 irrevocable election rules, so there's some flexibility for employees to change elections pretty much any time. And the contribution to an HSA from the employer is, itself is not considered a group health plan. So you don't have these ERISA or non-discrimination and other compliance considerations on the employer's HSA contributions. So it's important to remember, though, that the underlying high deductible health plan is a group health plan subject to all those rules. So sometimes our terminology is a little bit mixed up in the industry. We refer to it as an HSA plan or uh, it's really the, a high deductible health plan with an HSA contribution. Uh, but those are basically three ways the employers can help employees with out-of-pocket costs associated with their group coverage, the HRA, the health FSA, or a, a contributions to an HSA. Wow, that's a, those are definitely um, confusing to try to keep um, in order and right. try to understand the differences, and we do have some great tools um, that can help with that. So if you have questions on that, don't forget to, to reach out to your NFP broker because they can explain certainly the differences uh, might be good for another podcast for us to review all the various compliance issues with each one and how they right, vary. For sure. Um, but beyond strategies for contributing towards premiums and perhaps assisting with out-of-pocket costs, what other things should an employer consider? Yeah, so beyond that, employers just need to consider what other, what other options they want to provide to their employees to either provide medical care directly or assist with something um, corollary to that, like a wellness program. That all plays into their compensation and employment packages overall. But here's a few things to consider. What happens when someone goes out on a leave of absence? Will the employer pick up the tab on the health insurance premium while they're out? And if not, how are they going to ask employees to pay their portion of the premium during the leave? So they can pay it when they get back. Do they pay it before they leave? Or is it just something that's ongoing that they have to figure out a way if they don't have any paycheck how to handle that? Obviously, whether the leave is paid or not probably makes a big difference there, uh, but consider something like an FMLA leave. That's unpaid leave. How does the employer want to approach that? Uh, so that's a contribution towards premium question that the employer has some options with, but definitely needs to consider when they're talking about employer contribution strategy. In addition, how do employers want to handle retirees? Do they want to offer them a separate retiree-only plan? or perhaps contribute to or subsidize their COBRA coverage. That's a contribution strategy to consider as well. Usually employers are willing to help out their more important employees when they retire or through some type of severance package. So they'll also need to consider whether that's uh, an issue under the non-discrimination rules. 
Um, and then what about supplemental benefits like vision, dental, disability, group term life? Does the employer want to offer those benefits and does it want to contribute towards the cost or just make it available to employees? That's another consideration uh, as part of the overall employer contribution strategy. And then lastly, what about other additional benefits like wellness programs, EAPs or employee assistance programs, and telemedicine uh, programs? Those could be paid by the employer but don't have to be. And also where those are offered, it's possible that the employer is inviting additional compliance obligations. So is it willing to take on those uh, administrative compliance burdens? Uh, so sometimes it gets down to whether the employer really wants not only to take on the cost of contributing or otherwise providing the benefits, but do they want to worry about these compliance and administrative challenges that they're going to have as well? Certainly. And, and one side note that we, something that we see quite a bit to, and uh, something to be cautious of, are we, we do see some of these um, wellness programs that are coming, usually tied to a wellness program where um, the employee ends up really with more in their paycheck, even though they've paid for this program. And I'll just say at a very high level, every iteration of those that we've seen have not been compliant. Um, so make sure that if, if somebody comes to you and it sounds too good to be true, then check with your broker because it, it probably has some compliance issues. That's right. I just saw one of those this morning. Oh, you did? Another one. <laughs> Another one. Um, so well, so there's so much to consider here when you are designing a contribution strategy. And, and obviously, um, the employer's uh, um, view towards how they want to treat their employees and what types of, of products they want to push comes into consideration. Is there anything that we can expect in the coming months that could change what an employer does uh, for their contribution strategy? Yeah, it's unlikely we'll see any immediate changes on this. We've discussed some potential changes to HSA limits and contributions and re uh, relaxing some of those rules and some changes to the ACA like the loosening of the definition of full-time employee, making that 40 hours instead of 30 uh, but those seem unlikely now that Congress has kind of passed on them a few times now. It seems like we talk about them including it in a spending bill or in tax reform or whatever it is. And for uh, whatever reason, they haven't made it in there. So my, most likely we're in it for this year how it is. And then we'll just have to see how it goes thereafter. But I think this general idea of employers contributing towards the cost of coverage, providing avenues to assist with out-of-pocket costs, and then deciding on these supplemental benefits the employers should really consider all of those when it comes to their overall compensation strategy and particularly their employer contribution strategy towards benefits. Employers just sort of have to decide what they want. Absolutely. Thank you, Chase, for bringing this uh, topic to us. We know it's not, not a new regulatory topic, but it's certainly a topic that continues to come up daily when we speak to employers. So we appreciate you running through this, this overview. And as we like to say in uh, benefits compliance, that's a wrap. That's a wrap. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.